Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Everyone who's gone to public school knows that most of the dances that are thrown aren't the main event. The most exciting experiences happen before and after the dance itself. I want to tell you a story about a beautiful young lady that didn't make it home from what should have been a normal high school experience. This case takes that saying, a night to remember, way too far. On the evening of February 17th of 1974 in Fort Worth, Texas, 18-year-old Rodney McCoy finished his shift at the local gas station and went home to borrow his mother's Ford LTD. He needed the car to pick up his girlfriend, 17-year-old Carla Walker. They had plans to attend the Valentine's Day dance being held at Western Hills High School, where they both went to school. Rodney took Carla out to dinner before heading to their school cafeteria. The school was decked out, decorated in red and pink. The theme of the night was love is a kaleidoscope. After having a normal night of teenage festivities, the couple didn't want to end the night there. So they invited their two friends to drive around and be a little rebellious, drinking and smoking a little marijuana. Carla's parents would have been shocked to know that she was drinking and smoking though, because they saw her as the good girl. And she was. She was a fun, bubbly, kind-hearted personality in a tiny frame. She was a popular cheerleader dating the football quarterback. She also had an adventurous side, though, and liked to get a little wild with her friends, as most teenagers do. During their drive, the couple ended up stopping at the Brunswick Ridgla Bowl bowling alley and hanging out in the parking lot before returning to the school to drop off their friends. Rodney and Carla drove around a bit more, but decided to go back to that same bowling alley so Carla could use the bathroom. Once they got there, Carla went into the building to use the bathroom and came right back out after she finished. They got into the car and started to make out. But suddenly, Carla's door opened and chaos began. All teenagers get a little rebellious every now and then. It sounds like she was having a good time in what they thought was a safe way. I can't even tell you how many evenings I spent in a parked car with my friends just hanging out in empty parking lots when I was a teenager. Oh, for sure. Or even parked somewhere with a boyfriend even more private than a public parking lot. (laughs) Right. Okay. What happened? Rodney fell on top of Carla for a moment when the door opened unexpectedly and was immediately struck with an object. He was in a daze but could hear Carla screaming and begging for someone to stop hitting her. Then something struck Rodney again and he could hear Carla yell at him, go get daddy. And then he passed out at the steering wheel. The last thing he heard before everything went black was the sound of the car tearing off with his girlfriend inside. He didn't know how long he had been out, but when he woke up, Carla was gone and he knew he needed help. He immediately drove to the Walker residence to tell them what happened. In an interview with Missing Kids Rescued Kids, Cynthia Stone, Carla's sister, told them that she woke up with someone frantically ringing the doorbell. Rodney told them with blood streaming down his face that he and Carla were attacked in the bowling alley parking lot and they took her. It didn't take long for Carla's family to contact the police and everyone started searching for her. They went back to where it all began at the bowling alley, hoping that she may have somehow ended up back there, but all they could locate was her purse that was left discarded on the ground. Her family, friends, and pretty much the entire local community searched for Carla for three days, but there was no sign of her. Oh my god, that's crazy. Some random person takes her right out of the car? He had to be watching them, waiting for his moment. 
Oh, for sure. There's no way it was random. I seriously can't imagine how Rodney or her family felt knowing how much danger she was in. Rodney did the right thing, though, going straight to her parents. And it sounds like the police and the community didn't waste any time looking for her. They really didn't find her? That's so terrifying. I mean, Carla's family hoped that she would be returned or pushed out of the car or even left on the road somewhere, scared but alive. That was until February 20th when her lifeless body was located in a culvert in a remote area near Binbrook Lake. It looked like she had died recently and not the night of her abduction based on the decomposition of her body. The autopsy soon revealed that she had been beaten, tortured, sexually assaulted repeatedly, and strangled to death. Thanks to Rodney's accounts of that night, they knew a toxology report would find traces of alcohol and marijuana in her system. However, they found something much more interesting. The report showed that Carla was injected with morphine, a drug extremely hard to come by in the 70s. Knowing that she was sexually assaulted gave the police the opportunity to collect DNA from her body, but due to the lack of adequate technology, those samples were no help in identifying the killer. With such a powerful yet not easily accessible drug like morphine in her system, police knew they were looking for someone with a possible medical background. However, even after interviewing several suspects, nothing came up and no evidence from the crime scene was pointing towards a specific individual. However, many suspected Rodney and were critical of his account of what happened that night. Carla's family never doubted him, though, and never blamed him for what happened that night. I mean, we've seen people go to crazy lengths to make it look like they're actually a victim instead of the killer. But he's a kid. I believe his story. And I think there was some psycho out there. Yeah, he loved that girl and already had her all to himself. He had no reason to kill her. I agree. He was a victim, too, in this situation. Steph will jump us to 45 years later when Carla's murder was finally solved. Carla's loved ones weren't sure they would ever find out what had happened to their sweet girl. 45 years after her abduction, in April of 2019, police released a letter that was sent to them that was written anonymously at the time of Carla's disappearance. In this letter, it simply said, quote, killed Carla Walker in Binbrook. P.S. It's hard to say, but it is true. End quote. Then it was signed with only 10100. Police couldn't be sure what the signature meant, but they suspected that it might be related to the police code for dead body. With new detectives working on this case, they decided to make the letter public after all of these years. They were hoping someone would recognize the letter, the way it was written, or maybe the way it was signed and come forward. With the help of new technology, they were able to try the DNA left on Carla's clothing left at the crime scene one last time. They used the DNA left to get a genealogy profile, such as Ancestry.com or 23andMe which brought them to a man named Glenn McCurley, who was actually already well-known to the investigators. They used the DNA found in his trash can to confirm the match, and it came back positive. Why would he write a letter? It had to be weighing on him back then. I agree. It's definitely a sign of remorse, but apparently it wasn't weighing on him enough for him to turn himself in. I mean, it's 45 years later. (laughs) (laughs) But we have a DNA match, so now what? It turns out, a few months after Carla went missing, then-31-year-old Glenn was one of the potential suspects questioned by the police. Police learned he had been off work the night of the kidnapping as well as the following day. He lived less than a mile from the bowling alley, and his wife was out of town that weekend, giving him plenty of opportunity. 
He was their best suspect at the time. However, he was let go back in 1974 due to a lack of evidence. When he was finally arrested, now in his late 70s, he continued to deny any involvement, even in the face of DNA evidence. He can deny it all he wants, but the DNA does not lie. How did any cases get solved before DNA testing? Seriously, you can't argue with that. I mean, at this point, there's no one else he could be. Right. Four decades after the murder on August 24th, 2021, Glenn could no longer maintain his innocence. Glenn decided to close out the trial by waiving his right to a jury and changed his plea to guilty. According to Judge Elizabeth Beach, on the third day of the trial, she received a document, and in that document, Glenn confessed to Carla's kidnapping and murder. Judge Beach immediately sentenced Glenn to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Shortly after the sentencing, Carla's sister gave an impact statement which read, quote, I wish you'd done this a long time ago. I spent 17 years in the same bedroom with my sister. I knew her. She was four feet, 11 inches, 100 pounds. You had choices, lots of choices that night. You went out to kill somebody. She continued, you kept saying in your confession that that wasn't you. It just wasn't you. That was you, end quote. She even went as far as to offer Glenn a chance to write her a letter and come clean about exactly what happened the night her sister was taken. She continued with, I want to know if you've done this to anybody else. You need to bring that out because those families need to know too. You have nothing to lose at this point, end quote. Police consider him a person of interest in at least three other killings of young women during the 70s and 80s, but so far haven't been able to prove it. June Ward, a vocational nurse in Fort Worth, Texas, was found murdered in February 19, 1977. Then on July 9, 1980, the body of Denise Hugh was found in southeast Fort Worth. In February of 1983, the body of Christy Tower, a nightclub waitress, was found in a field north of the city. All of these women were killed in similar fashion to Carla, and the disappearances seemed to perfectly correspond to whenever Glenn's wife would go out of town. These are only a few still unsolved murders that Glenn may be responsible for. Unfortunately, the tragedies in the area only continued to pile up throughout the 1980s with eerily similar stories. I'm sure Carla wasn't the only one, and him getting away with her murder empowered him to continue his sick spree. I wish there was more public details as to how they were killed, though, because outside of it happening on his days off, injected with morphine would definitely point towards him. That's the one thing I still don't understand. He doesn't have a medical background as far as I can see. How did he get morphine in the first place? Maybe he knew somebody in the medical field, because I can't imagine that being a drug that's easy enough to get to sell off the streets. Regardless, though, he ruined so many lives. Absolutely. The other victim in this case, Carla's then-boyfriend Rodney McCoy, also made a statement, saying, It's been 47 years. I had a cloud of suspicion on me for all those years. That's torment. He continued with, I just felt I let Mr. Walker down. He said, his little flower, take care of my little flower. Despite the fact that he was powerless in the situation after being brutally pistol whipped and knocked unconscious, he lived with the guilt all these years, wishing he had done more. Jim Walker, Carla's brother, also made a statement at the trial. He said directly to Glenn, forgiving him for what he had done. He told reporters at NBCDFW, quote, 
This is a time of healing. It's funny to say that after nearly 50 years, isn't it? He said after the trial, what we witnessed is a lot of feelings in that courtroom, and now it's time to move forward and hopefully be able to help other families. I feel so bad for Rodney. He carried so much guilt after all these years. Even though he knew he didn't hurt her, he felt responsible and probably ran through that night so many times, just trying to figure out what else he could have done to save her. Survivor's guilt is what that's called. Not only did he carry the guilt of not being able to save her, so many in the town thought he had killed her. For so many years, he carried that around. Well, thank God for DNA technology and science. (laughs) For it to solve a case 45 years later is insane. Absolutely. Prosecutors from the case told NBC, our hope is this case can help spur more testing, especially this new DNA testing, and maybe we can solve some cold cases and bring some closure to other families. Prosecutor Diavion, who leads the adult sexual assault unit in the DA's office, said, most cases have not gone to trial. We are the first to go to trial with this that we know of. Carla's family hopes to help other families going through the same thing as them. With this new DNA technology, so many other cold cases can get closure. Carla's case makes us thankful for the DNA technology advancement we see today. Her killer got nearly 50 years just to live his life, possibly continuing to hunt innocent young women. He got more years of freedom that he didn't deserve than Carla had on this earth at all. This cold case just goes to show you should never give up on getting justice for your loved ones. Carla girl, you didn't deserve to have your life cut short, but I hope you can finally rest in peace. Season of Justice, or SOJ, is a nonprofit dedicated to providing funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. SOJ provides grants to law enforcement for advanced DNA analysis solutions, such as forensic genealogy and next-generation sequencing. The organization also awards grants to families to support awareness campaigns, search teams, and other initiatives that can assist in pushing their cold cases forward. SOJ's goal is to provide financial resources for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crimes. If you have a case, old or new, you would like assistance with, visit www.seasonofjustice.org. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode done by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime with Conjure Podcast for our question of the week, and you can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our Conjure tip of the week? Today, I want to talk about flowers. For things like school dances or first dates, one thing that is usually gifted is flowers. One flower that you can connect with to bring greater safety to various aspects of your life is the bitterroot flower. To be even more specific, this flower protects you from attacks. Next time you take your child to pick out a corsage for their date, or a bouquet for that lucky person you swipe right on, or even some flowers for your home decor, consider bitterroot. Excellent tip. It's a beautiful flower that is incredibly powerful. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.